Welcome. My name is Pastor Justin. We are in a series called On Mission, uh, where we have been just kind of walking through what it looks like to live on mission as a church um, and as individuals. And um, I was thinking, uh, I was reading through Hebrews chapter 11, um, and uh, I was thinking about the, the Hall of Fame, that uh, one of the greatest recognitions of an athlete to receive is to be inducted into a, a sports hall of fame. And uh, in order to get into a sports hall of fame, you typically need to kind of have like meet high statistical threshold, um, whatever that means, points on the board uh, in, your, in your sport. You need to get a percentage of votes. And also you have to have an exceptional record in order to even just be get an opportunity to be considered. You have to be exceptionally successful uh, to get into uh, a Hall of Fame. Because our culture, and this isn't wrong or right, our culture defines success by results. We measure things, right? And that's how we calculate results. We measure statistics and grade point averages and test scores. And by, we, we look at stopwatches and GPAs and bank accounts and votes. Like we, we measure everything by, by results. We measure success by results. However, God looks at, looks at success a little bit differently than, than we do. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we find like God's hall of fame. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever read through Hebrews 11, I'm not going to read through it all today, but I, I highly encourage you just to take a look at God's faith hall of fame as, uh, as it's all outlined in Hebrews chapter 11. It is very clear as you read through Hebrews chapter 11 that all, with all those names that are listed, that there is a, a pathway of getting into this hall of fame. And the pathway is by faith. Uh, you'll see it time and time again as you read down through Hebrews 11. It's like, by faith, Abel brought, a, brought God a, a better offering. By faith, Noah built an ark. By, by faith, Abraham obeyed and went even when he didn't know where he was going to. By faith, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea on, on dry ground. By faith, the army marched around Jericho until the walls fell. The writer of Hebrews goes on and on and on by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. So if all of these people were commended for their faith, inducted into the, the faith hall of fame, as we could say, like, if faith gets the attention of God, and it, then I think it kind of begs the question, what exactly is faith? How do I get it? And if I have a little bit, how do I get more of it? It's kind of a question that maybe you've never thought too hard about it, but it is, it's a nebulous. Uh, the, the most common definition is actually in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and it's the one that if you've been around Christianity, it's the one that we quote as kind of the definition of faith. And I'm going to read it for you really quickly. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we do, what we do not see. It sounds incredibly deep. But if I'm honest, it's kind of nebulous. Like, Maybe you're like, oh, no, no, that nails it. Like, I feel like it's not so much a definition of faith. It's more of a description of what faith looks like. I think sometimes it's actually easier to define something by talking about what it's not. And so I want to just take a moment and just define what faith 
is not. Faith is not blind optimism. Faith is not positive vibes. Faith is not intellectual assent to a doctrine. Faith is not superstition. It's not a feeling. Faith is not uh, something that requires you to check your brain at the door of a church before you come in so you can get it out, get it, pick it up on your way out. Um, if we take Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, in context, all of the people that, that got honorable mention or made it into the Hall of Fame did great things. And so you could almost conclude that, that they made the list because of their results, right? They, they did something, got results, and this is why they're in there. They're, that maybe God measures success by results just like the world does. But then he concludes in Hebrews 11, verse 39, with this doozy. It says this, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. So true faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances or consequences. I'll say that one more time in case you want to write it down. True faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances or, or consequences. Um, you want to know what God's love language is? Yeah, he took the online assessment, the five love languages, and it came back. It's weird, but it came back as obedience, which is weird. I mean, that the creator of the universe and the, the one who gave you breath and life and everything in it, that he would want you to, to do what he says. I, I know, he thinks he's God. Um, that's his love language, is obedience. And living on mission is measured by obedience, not necessarily by results. Um, if you think about that for a moment and just let that kind of just sink in for a second, like in God's mind, catch this, there's no success without obedience. So maybe a better question than like, do you have faith is, are you successful? Are you being successful? And please hear me. I'm not asking about your accomplishments. I'm not actually asking about how much money you have in your bank account. I'm not asking about your achieves or your awards or your plaques. I'm not asking about your current salary or your test scores or any of those things that we measure success by. If God defines success by obedience, not perfection, but obedience to his revealed will and his word, are you running after the world's definition of success or are you walking in what we said is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances or consequences? Are you successful? Um, and we're going to take some time today and, um, and get into James chapter 2 because um, he kind of, James, James takes us in a little bit of a different way and explodes this whole idea of what, what faith looks like. Um, and so if you wouldn't mind standing with me, we're going to honor the, the reading of God's word together in James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14 and read down a few of these verses. And I, and I submit to you before we even read it, that, that what we read in Hebrews chapter 11 and the definition of faith, James is not in disagreement with it. In fact, he's actually just saying it in a little bit of a different way. So get ready. Get ready to maybe be offended. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, 
If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Such a brother or a sister without, uh, or suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? In verse 26, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Lord, um, I thank you just for uh, the sobering reality that I think many times we just need to be reminded of, um, that we are called to be friends of God, that you call us not just to be robots to do your bidding or slaves to do whatever you tell us to do, but we do it out of a love for you because you first loved us. Lord, may we live lives of faith as we live on mission. Um, may, may you change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. In, in 13 verses that I just read, the words faith and deeds is talked about 11 times. Almost every verse, he talks about faith and works, faith and deeds. Um, and this, this one scripture that I just read has caused so much controversy, so much confusion, so much debate over, over centuries. But, but at its heart, it's communicating the exact same thing that Hebrews 11 is, is communicating, that faith is trusting as well as obeying God's word. And before we get too far into this, I just want to clarify something that um, right off the bat, James is not telling us that we need to add good deeds to our faith in order to like, you know, get God's attention, keep our good standing with him, keep our salvation or we're going to lose it. Like it's not that it's not Jesus plus something else. That, that is our salvation. It's not Jesus plus baptism or Jesus plus speaking in tongues or Jesus plus tithing or Jesus plus trying harder. Like we are saved by the faith in the work of that, that Jesus did on our behalf because Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It's all Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's always Jesus. Jesus alone saves. Amen? So, Instead, what James is talking about here is he's arguing that faith will inevitably be characterized by works. It will inevitably be characterized by works. In other words, when you look at an apple tree and if there's no fruit on it, um, the fruit on it does not make the tree alive. Rather, if, 
if the tree is alive, then it will produce fruit. So if you look at an apple tree and, and there's no fruit that's being produced on it, then you can say and you should say that tree has no life in it. You're judging it by the fruit or the lack of fruit on it, whether it actually has life in it. Because once I receive Jesus and his work for me, then it begins to work in me and it will inevitably lead to Jesus working through me. We receive it for me, it works in me, and then it works through me. This is kind of what James is talking about. This is what Hebrews is talking about when they're celebrating. Uh, It's not just about the results. It's about this kind of confident obedience of following the the work and the will of God despite the consequences, despite those things that, that, that might come up. And so I want to hit on three things today that he talks about right here. He talks about three different types of faith in James chapter 2. Three different types of faith. Two of these types of faith, the first two, are false faith, and the third one is true faith. The first one that he talks about, I just call it dead faith. He says this in, in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? Remember, James is just using this like example to make a bigger point. This is not prescriptive. It's just descriptive. It's, I actually think that he's making it a bit of an exaggeration. It's probably what I would do if I was trying to, to, to bring about a point. Essentially, this is what he's saying. He's like, guys, look, think about this. If you got a brother or sister and they're literally naked and starving and you, you went up to them and you said, hey, just want you to know, I'm praying for you, brother. Like, keep warm and all your nakedness, eat up with all your nothing, non-existent food. Um, you know what you could use? You could use some wise counsel and some underwear. <laughs> You're welcome. God bless bless your heart, right? I mean, like if you, if you literally came up to a brother or sister that was naked and starving and those were your words, those were the, that was all you offered them. James says to them, and it's, it's kind of like, well, duh. Like he says, what good is that? That is literally useless for someone who is naked and starving. You're not offering clothes or, or food. You're just saying, hey, you be warm, well-fed, And then he drops the hammer in verse 17. He says, in the same way, faith by itself is not, that is not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In essence, dead faith is a faith that substitutes words for deeds. Like it's all lip service and no lifestyle. And I, and I, and I've been thinking about this a lot, like, It's so easy for us in our day, in a day of social media warriors, to fall into a false faith that satisfies us into believing that words are as good as deeds. That that typing out some responses, they need to know, right? (laughs) Is just as good as loving a brother or sister. Like, How often do I watch, even in our world today, us becoming inebriated by our correct theology, by our Bible knowledge, by our own rightness, 
that it does not require us to show love towards somebody else. In fact, it may not even be in the equation. I need to be right. And what James is reminding us is that intellectual assent to correct doctrine by itself is not faith. He, he calls it dead. Dead faith is essentially speaking fluent Christianese, but bearing no fruit of loving God and loving others. Because any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life is suspect at best. Nobody encounters Jesus and remains the same afterwards. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 40. He says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, well, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or stranger and even clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Like what James and Jesus are saying is that our love for God will inevitably translate into a love for people. And he's like, if it doesn't, something's broken. A dead faith may grow a whole lot of leaves on the tree. It may appear to be alive, but it does not grow fruit. It does not reproduce. It does not bless others. And James continues and he says in verse 19, and this is a, a kind of a, a, pre, a pre-verse for the second type of faith. He says this, you believe that there's one God, good, exclamation point. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The second false faith that James outlines is demonic faith. Now, I don't know about you, but the fact that like James uses demons as an illustration for a type of faith freaks me a little bit out. Like to think that I could have the same faith as a demon is a bit unnerving. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you. Maybe you're like calm, cool, and collected. But as like as he starts like go, going through this, it's like yeah, 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 yeah. You say this, you say that, but you're no, that's that's the same faith as a demon has, and they shudder. So, bear with me here for a second. Let's process through what demons believe, because I think it's important. If 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 he's comparing a type of faith to um, to demons, you might be surprised by a demon's orthodoxy. I'm just going to throw it out there to you. Number one, you know what demons believe? They believe in the existence of God. They're under no delusions about that. They're, they don't claim to be atheists or agnostics. No demon is ever just like, yeah, I just don't know what I really believe here, right? They know who their creator is. They know who's in charge. They know who God is. They, they believe in the existence of God. The second thing they believe, demons, 
They believe that Jesus is the son of God. They're, they're, they're not kind of like, well, I don't know. I believe in God, but I just don't know about Jesus. I don't know if I, where I stand on that. Mark chapter three, verse 11 says this. Whenever impure spirits saw him, Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. I think that's proof enough that uh, demons have really good orthodox faith of believing that Jesus is the son of God. The third thing, they believe in hell, a place of eternal torment. Luke chapter eight, verse 31 says, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Number four, last one, they believe that Jesus is their judge. The same story in Matthew chapter eight, verse 28 says this, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. Look at what they say. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So, all in all, demons have really good theology. Um, they believe in God. They believe Jesus is the son of God. They believe in hell. They believe that Jesus is their judge. And not only that, James says in verse 19, I don't know if you caught that. He said, even the demons believe that. And then these last two words, and shudder. I think that's what sets them apart. So this false faith that they have is not only affected their intellect, it's, it's affected their emotions as well. It's not dead faith. It's gone beyond dead faith because now they're emotionally involved in this thing, right? It's not just like, yes, we have this intellectual ascent, but it's not made any difference in our life. No, it says actually they are scared. It says that they shudder at the name of Jesus. So, so why is this still a false faith? What are they missing? This is what it is. They have information without repentance. They have understanding without surrender. They know about Jesus, but they don't love him. They're scared of him, but they don't fear him. They have faith, but they have no fruit. And it begs the question, could you have stopped short at having demonic faith? Like trying to live a religious moral life, but if you're honest, all it is is shuddering. Because true faith is, is, yeah, it's obedience, but not because you're scared of him. True faith, it's like what in Hebrews 11, that Abraham was known as a friend of God. True faith is living on mission with him. True faith is being so in love with the one who so loves you. True faith is simply wanting to please him because he loves you so much. It's kind of like in marriage, um, I don't try to please my wife because I'm afraid of her. 
there have been times. But I don't please her because I'm, I'm scared of her. Notice I'm not looking at her. Um, I please her because I love her. Um, true faith wants to please God because of who he is, not because of what you get. True faith wants to please God, not because you're trying to avoid the alternative. And James continues, and he says this in verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that, that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith that is alone, all by itself. So the third type of faith that, you, that, that James outlines is the one true faith for three Ds. I'll call it dynamic faith. We got dead, demonic, and dynamic. I'm a preacher, so, so sue me. Um, <laughs> dead faith, remember this, involves your mind, intellectual assent to a doctrine, Okay, I believe it, fine. Demonic faith involves your mind and your emotions. But dynamic faith, not only your mind and your emotions, but your will as well. You're actually putting your trust in that thing that you say and that you feel and saying, I trust you, Lord. Titus 1.16 says, they claim to know God but their actions, but by their actions, they deny him. Because in dynamic faith, in true faith, the mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, and the will acts upon the truth. That's how it's supposed to work. We receive, we understand, it, it gets into our, our, into our mind, and, and then it, it plays itself out into our wills, into our actions. And men and women of Hebrews chapter 11, the, the faith hall of fame, you can go back and look at the. These were all people of action. All people of action. In fact, if it was their action that was the proving ground for their great faith. It's not necessarily the results of their action. Some of them died and they never actually even saw what the goodness of what they did back here, how it played out later on in life. Some of them never actually got to see the fruit of their faith. They just chose to believe God and to honor and to obey, even though they, they didn't know what the consequences were going to be, and they didn't know how it was all going to turn out. It was their actions that was the proving ground for their faith. Like faith, faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K, risk, risk. I think one of the best ways to, to show you what I'm talking about is to actually show you what I'm talking about. So can I have um, somebody that, um, that would be willing to come up here with me? Uh, I'll tell you what you're going to do after that. Anybody? Anybody? Any? Okay, Paul Kelly, come on up here. Yeah, yeah. This guy stood right up. He's like, I'm, I'm coming. I am doing this. Um, so when I talk about faith, yeah, get right up here, man. When I talk about faith being like R, spelled R-I-S-K, risk, um, 
What I mean is, is that it's not just something that you say you believe. It's not just something that you feel that you believe. It's something that you uh, are willing to put your trust into, right? So, do you trust me? Yes. You sure? Sure. Do you trust that I wouldn't do anything to hurt you? Yes. You sure? Okay. He didn't know me as a youth pastor. Okay. So, so if you trust me, then I want you to turn around and, and face the other way. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. 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 Okay. Now, if you trust me, then I want you to just listen to the words that I have to say to you, and, and then you can choose to respond and, and, to, and to trust me, okay? So what I want you to do, put your arms out to your side, kind of like in a T-pose, just like that. Yeah, look at you. You do trust me. Okay. Now, um, on the count of three, I want you to just stay facing the exact same direction that you are, and I want you to just fall backwards and allow me to catch you. Okay? Yeah. All right. Are we going to do one, two, three, go, or just one, two, three? Okay. One, two, three, go. Okay. Whoa, okay. This guy, this is this guy. You see that? I was just hypothetically agreeing upon the, the rules of engagement here. Okay. One, two, three, go. Oh, all right, one more time, one more time, one more time. Now he knows, now he knows. Go ahead, let's do this thing. Here we go. Okay, one, two, three, go. Yes, nice, dude, nice. Thank you, thank you. Thanks, buddy, I appreciate it. Um, so when I'm talking about risk, when I'm talking about like, hey, okay, now he not only says, okay, yes, I trust you. Yes, I believe in you. Yes, I, I, I believe that you're not going to hurt me. Yes, I feel like I can, I can trust you. Like my heart's in this thing. My emotions are there. But, but faith is actually taking the risk of falling into his arms. Like faith is actually saying like, I not only believe you and I not only like say that I trust you, but I'm willing to, to go out on a limb to do the thing that you've asked me to do, even though I don't necessarily know how this thing's going to turn out. Like, true faith always leads to actions. In fact, James would say that you can't even really tell what type of faith you have until it's tested. Until you have to obey God and truly trust him. Because until then, it's all hypothetical. Until then, you're like, yeah, I, I think I believe in this, this doctrine. I got this all nailed down. Yes, I believe in God, all those types of things. And I even feel it, and I feel his presence, and I know, and I, yeah, all these. But you don't actually know what type of faith you have, if it's dead, demonic, or dynamic, until you finally make that decision to say, okay, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to actually go back and trust that you're going to, to, to catch me. Now, there's a fine line here. And I, I'm, I am threading that needle. There's a fine, not, fine line that I need you to understand here is that faith is not verified by works. It is demonstrated by works. So we don't add, add all of our good deeds and our works and all those things in some way to like get his attention so that he now likes us and loves us and is willing to... Like, we do it because we just get a place... I can't help myself but to, but to listen to trust him, to surrender my all to him. If you go back to marriage, right? Like we were talking about marriage and me not being afraid of my wife. Um, love is more than an intellectual decision. Can we agree upon that? It's more than intellectual. Like when I, when I um, proposed to Katie, I didn't say, hey, babe, uh, I think it'd be probably financially and logically prudent to marry you. 
She's like, what a dream boat. Still my heart, right? That's not what I said. Because it's more than an intellectual decision. Now, all that might be true, yes, but it's certainly, love is certainly more than that, right? Like, it's certainly more than a contract or um, some sort of like a, a, a money financial decision. Love is also more than a feeling. What I think that a lot of times what people, hmm, okay, I'm going to push, I'm going to press on it. What I feel like a lot of times people fall into is, is love, but it's really this. Uh, you make me feel so good about me. I feel real queasy around you. I think we should get married. I want to have this queasiness all the time and feel good about me because you make me feel good. Love is more than a feeling because how many of you know there are ebbs and flows? Amen? And as long as you're getting married because of the way they make you feel, just get ready. Just get ready. Love is more than a feeling. It's more than an intellectual decision. Love is an action. Because when you love, you sacrifice. When you love, you serve. When you love, you prefer the other above yourself. When you love, you watch BBC dramas, even though they're horrible. When you love, you do the dishes, even though you don't want to, and other people probably should. When you love, you do things, not to earn it, but because you love them. I... I don't, I don't think to myself, I can't stand my wife. We should probably go out on a date, right? No, it's my delight in her that drives the discipline. It's not the discipline that drives my delight in her. In essence, in very simplistic terms, faith looks a whole lot like loving God. It's more than intellect, and it's more than a feeling. It's love and action, I grew up with what I would probably say is a dead faith. Um, not in a bad way, but just like a, I went to church, went to Catholic school, learned about God at an early age, but that was about it. Um, I knew of him. Uh, I pretty much looked at faith as the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven. And um, I think a lot of people have a faith that goes about that deep, if I'm going to be honest. Like, if you asked them to fill out an anonymous survey and to check a box as to what their religion was, they might check Christian, right? Like if I died, Jesus would know I checked a box for him, right? You're welcome, Jesus, right? Like, you know, like that's kind of like the extent of maybe where that would go. Um, the problem is, is that Jesus never, not once throughout the Bible, can we see Jesus gathering some of his disciples in the crowd and saying, listen up, everybody, come on, come on in. Can you hear me in the back? Um, I'm about to tell you the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven. He never once did that, which is weird because a lot of times we're kind of looking for like, what's the minimum? What's the minimum I can do to just sneak in, right? The back door maybe. When I got a little bit older, I would say that I probably had a demonic faith. I, I, uh, I learned some Bible stories. I also learned indirectly from religious people that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. I don't know why or where that is necessarily in the Bible, but like, um, and then out of my own guilt and fear, it drove me to try to be a good person or at least fake it well. <laughs> so I wanted to go to heaven or maybe I just actually didn't want to go to hell. And so I did good things in order to attempt to get God's attention. And the bad things that I did, I was hoping he wasn't looking when I did it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Come on. 
Can I get a witness? You get to this place where you're just like, you know, did you, just, did you pay attention? I just did some awesome things. I gave this. I helped an old lady cross the street. Am I not amazing? <laughs> I hope you saw it. And the bad things that I did, I would just do it in the dark. I wouldn't, and people wouldn't see, and it was good. And God, he was, he was probably sleeping. He didn't see it, right? But it wasn't about because I loved him. It was because I actually was afraid of him or I didn't want to go to hell. Demonic faith. It was probably a whole lot of shuddering. And then I truly encountered Jesus. Um, it was, man, I'd known about Jesus for a long time, but I encountered him the summer before my ninth grade year. Um, when I say encountered him, I, didn't, I don't mean I encountered people that talked about him or read my Bible or anything even like that. I just mean like I, I, encountered, I encountered the presence of Jesus. And... Um, and when you encounter him, you can't help but surrender yourself to him. He's just so good. He just loves so well. And I made him my Lord and my Savior, and, I, and my life has never been the same. Because you can't meet Jesus and not change. Have I lived it perfectly? Not by a long shot. Here's the good news. He's actually never required perfection out of me. He simply just asks me to trust him. And as I trust him, he continually transforms me, my thinking, my, 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 my actions, my life. Nobody had to convince me to, to tithe or to forgive people or to love people or to worship him. Like I wanted to do it out of a love for him. And I would say this, as people of faith, the more you get to know him, the more you'll begin to love the things that he loves the more you'll do the things that he does. The more you'll want to be on mission with him as he invites you in to this amazing journey together. I want to leave you with this scripture in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. I've read it to you before. It's one of my favorite um, passages out of the message paraphrase. He says, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Folks, what if faith looks a whole lot like that? Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And you'll live freely and lightly. Why don't you stand with me? I knew this, this girl from childhood who became very sick. Um, she, she actually ended up living in a hospital for, for months at a time, and she needed a bone marrow transplant. Um, it ended up that her sister 
was the perfect match to be her donor and, um, and donated her bone marrow to save her sister's life. I learned that there was this odd thing that happens. Pastor Tom and I were talking about this. When people have had bone marrow transplants, uh, bone marrow is important because it contains stem cells. It's different than just a blood, blood transfusion or anything like that. Um, stem cells are, are building blocks that replicate and give rise to more cells of the same type. Um, and when you receive a bone marrow transplant, your bone marrow is removed and is replaced with the donor's bone marrow. Now, in simple terms, and this is why it matters, in simple terms, in just a few months after a bone marrow transplant, instead of replicating your own body's blood cells, you start to replicate the donor's blood cells in your body, which is kind of crazy, right? So like if, if you took a DNA blood test on my friend, she would actually have her sister's DNA. That's crazy. That's crazy. Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't think that Paul understood, medically speaking, any of what I just shared. But he is describing the same transformation that happens spiritually in followers of Christ. That once the blood of Christ is applied to us, he changes us from the inside out. His attributes begin replicating on the inside of us that we no longer love what we used to love. We no, we no longer do what we used to do because we are no longer who we used to be. That Jesus Christ is your ultimate blood donor. He is your perfect match. And, and just like what happened with my friend, um, that blood donation not only saves your life, but you find that you start to become more like him. Like he not only saves us, but in the saving, he begins the process of transforming us from the inside out. Once I receive Jesus's work for me, it begins Jesus's work in me that will inevitably lead to Jesus's work through me. As we end with this last song, I just want to, I just want to encourage you as we talk about all these different types of faith and look at the hall of faith and all of these things, all of it begins with receiving Jesus Christ. All of it begins with surrendering ourselves. Yes, I get it up here. And yes, I even, I even, I even sense something on the inside of me. But I'm willing to surrender my all to you, Jesus. And so as we end with this last song, I just want to encourage you, if you're in that place and maybe, maybe you've walked with him for a while, but how many of you know that so many times, even in our marriages and our relationships, we can, we can begin to kind of slide back. That we're not doing it because out of that love, we're doing it just because we should. Or because we're trying to avoid the alternative. 
And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that as we, as we worship you today, that you would just, that blood donation that you made on our behalf so many years ago will be applied into this life. Lord Jesus, have your way in here. Change me, mold me, make me, break me to be more like you. Have your way in us, Jesus. We live on mission with you. Let's worship him together.